Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. My name is Armin Manukkaloyan, and I'm currently a PhD student at the Department of History over at Georgetown University. I will be speaking today with Michelle Toussaint, professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Professor Toussaint received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. A British historian by training, her teaching and scholarship broadly engaged the relationship between geopolitics, culture, and human rights. She is the author of a number of articles that have appeared in the American Historical Review, Victorian Studies, and the Journal of Women's History. She is the author of Smyrna's Ashes, Humanitarianism, Genocide, and the Birth of the Middle East, which appeared in 2012 under the imprimatur of the University of California Press. Her most recent work, which she will be talking uh, to us about today, is The British Empire and the Armenian Genocide, Humanitarianism and Imperial Politics from Gladstone to Churchill, which was published last year by IB Tours. Professor Toussaint, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to talk about your book. It's nice to be here, Armin. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, So, in recent years, we have seen a host of publications that have appeared uh, to focus on new aspects of the Armenian Genocide and the Armenian question more broadly. I'm thinking here of David Rodanio's Against Humanitarianism, which touches upon the subject, uh, Keith David Wattenpau's Bread from Stones, and Joe Laycock's Imagining Armenia. Uh, you've written numerous works dealing inter alia with women in Victorian society and the burgeoning humanitarian movement in the British Empire in the 19th century. And I'd like to ask, what motivated you exactly to write about British humanitarianism and its relationship with the Armenian Genocide? Well, it started with my last book, Smyrna's Ashes, was about um, the Middle East and um, the uh, beginnings of, of Western involvement in the Middle East and the making it, um, the remaking of the Middle East along these ethno-nationalist lines. The last chapter of that book was on the Armenian Genocide, and I realized I had so much more material to share, stuff no one had ever seen. After thinking about it um, and talking with my publisher, um, it looked like there was a book there. So it um, it really it it really had a life of its own. It really was a book that needed to be written. Um, I really was the only person, as far as I can tell, who had gone to these archives and seen this stuff, and um, it made it a really exciting opportunity, especially in light of the books you mentioned. Keith um, Wattenpah's work is terrific. David Rodogno's work is terrific, but even older stuff like. Um, Nassibian's work on the British Army and the Armenian question. It's just wonderful stuff. So I really use those as inspirations to kind of shape the story around the new stuff I discovered. And hopefully it'll be useful to folks who are interested in the Armenian genocide, but also the history of humanitarianism more generally. Yeah, and uh, I think we could even add to that list Donald Bloxham's uh, The Great Game of Genocide, which came out a little over a decade ago. But what I found uh, most intriguing about the, the book is that you're not just looking at what the British Foreign Office and what Whitehall were talking about as regards their policy relating to uh, the Ottoman Empire. You're looking at British society. And I was wondering if you could perhaps describe the world and the worldviews of the late 19th century Victorian. What was unique to members of the British government and the British public that would have perhaps made them more attuned to the plight of the Armenians? And uh, how did this new uh, how did this age where you have mass circulation press, a greater 
connectedness with the world and what was going on. Um, uh, I, I suppose say have a factor in uh, people starting to pay attention and to uh, uh, become more aware of uh, their surroundings. That is a great question. It was a world saturated in media. I know that's hard to imagine with our world being so <laughs> oversaturated in media, but it was the first moment that people could really see what was going on beyond their front door in a really substantial way. Um, the Crimean War in 1854 was the first war to be published or to be covered in the press. Um, so during the second half of the 19th century, Britain's the, the world comes to their doorstep. And Britain is important in particular. It's something we forget. But they have the biggest empire on the globe, around the globe. And because their empire reigns supreme, it is a place where people work, um, civil servants work. It's a place where missionaries go. It's a place where people um, are connected to in a very real way because of imperial politics. So the Victorian worldview is one of uh, Britain is a global hegemon. It was really is like the biggest, it is the biggest power at the time. And it's also a period where there are no ins international institutions. And one of the claims I make is that this is a world in which international institutions are subsumed under the rubric of empire. So the British empire really is calling the shots. And so for Victorians, their worldview is such that we have an obligation to play some role in the world. Now what that is, is up for discussion during this time. But the answer they come up with, and this is largely under Gladstone's, Prime Minister Gladstone's leadership, is that we are a liberal humanitarian empire and all the contradictions that implies, and that we have these obligations to subject peoples around the world. Now, when you think about the British Empire, not exactly a human rights institution, right? Plenty of these ideas are not filtering down to the people that are subjugated by the British. But the Ottoman Empire is understood as a place where Britain can have a real influence over humanitarian um, and geopolitical um, uh, forces at work. And they really do put a lot of pressure on the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, and uh, I think we really do see that distinction once uh, William Gladstone's uh, administration comes to replace uh, the Israelis. And uh, what exactly were the constraints uh, of the liberal government and as it found itself operating under during the last two decades of the 19th century, insofar as its policy toward Armenians and the Ottoman Empire were concerned. Did Gladstone and the Liberals ever manage to reconcile their rhetoric with the reality on the ground? And did the Liberal policy toward the Armenians evolve when they assumed power again in 1906? And uh, perhaps we can also say what exactly, uh, how, how much exactly did that policy differ from the Israelis or, or previous uh, British governments? That's a great question. Um, uh, you know, Gladstone had to win elections, and in fact, in 1880, he wins the biggest election of his life, really, with um, on the heels of the Bulgarian atrocities agitation. What he does is he say all these Bulgarian Christians were massacred by the Ottoman Empire, and Britain should do something. Disraeli will do nothing. He called it famously coffee house babble that people were just <laughs> chatting on on these these. You know, again, we're talking about massacres, but it wins him an election in 1880. One of the it's one of the key factors, and there's lots of reasons we could go into about why that particular strain wins the election. But but humanitarianism, believe it or not, was a winning um, a, a winning issue. Um, liberals believed, liberal with a capital L, the Liberal Party believed that um, it had a role that Brit the British Empire had a role to play in the rest of the world. Now, having said that, 
they never really do anything um, in terms of uh, other than sort of putting more pressure on the Sultan and putting more pressure on diplomatic channels. The only time that I found that they really sent um, sent military forces in the massacres in 1909 in Adana, they um, had a warship there, but that warship was told to not do anything. So they were just sort of looming over there. So it isn't it isn't a government of action, but humanitarianism gets used as um, uh, a rhetorical tool, really, to give the Liberal Party a sort of soul and a culture of, of engagement with the rest of the world. And it very much taps into this idea that Britain should be a benign empire. It should be an empire that is also, if not benign, then an empire that actually um, uh, has a purpose in keeping the peace, um, and that this is this is one of its purposes. So I think that's why the liberals are able to use it as such a powerful issue. Do they do anything different than Israeli conservatives? If you look at, if you do a balance sheet, they aren't that much different in terms of action. But their rhetoric is different, and it and it creates a real engagement with people who believe that Britain has a role. So missionaries go out. You get the beginning of a humanitarian movement. So what it does do is create an engagement of and a rhetoric of obligation that um, has an effect on culture and society, even though militarily or um, in terms of, um, of diplomacy and geopolitics, the British do very relatively little. It does create a real engagement. People know about the Armenians. People know about the Assyrians. The people know about the Bulgarians. And they wouldn't have done that without this kind of rhetorical moment that I'm talking about. Right. And so I suppose it wasn't so much uh, for uh, want of trying. The British, or at least uh, Gladstone's government, did envision uh, extending some form of aid uh, to the Armenians, or uh, perhaps rhetoric, or in applying pressure against the, gov the regime of Abdul Hamid II, and uh, it was unable to bring about the, these very uh, much heralded reforms which were codified in the Treaty of Berlin of 1878, and was that because of the, the balance of power did the United Kingdom have to balance its, uh, insofar as the geopolitical uh, situation was concerned, was it concerned about what... Excuse me. Yeah, uh, so, um, because, uh, was Britain, so it wasn't for uh, a want of trying that the uh, Great Britain was unable to enact these reforms, it was uh, uh, it was. Uh, it also had to take into consideration the geopolitical situation, and what was this part of uh, uh, the government's uh, not wanting to rock the boat and perhaps um, uh, hinder or uh, you know hinder its relations with Russia, or uh, what exactly was it that we did not see much more uh, substantive changes come about? The Russia issue is really interesting because what Britain is doing is trying to make a claim that they are the protectors of the Ottoman Christian minorities. And of course, Russia is a, makes a much more natural claim to that in terms of geography. Russia is Orthodox. These Christians are Orthodox. Um, and so Britain really is kind of um, making a play, if you will, for the loyalties of this of these of these Orthodox Christians, and they have it. They get it written into the treaty, as you know. Article sixty one becomes this very famous moment where Britain takes 
in reality, legal, international legal responsibility for the wellness and and, and um, uh, uh, safety of Ottoman Christians. Now, they do it with the Jews too earlier, which is interesting, and neither of these constituencies, as Caroline Fink um, points out, ever get any benefit from this actual benefit. But what they're doing is they're playing the Russians, uh, playing off against the Russians, but they're also attempting to create a toehold in this region by creating loyal people who are loyal to uh, to Britain's agendas. And so they do use Armenians as a wedge um, and use the Armenian issue as a wedge. So um, it isn't so much their hands are tied, but I think they are um, using Armenians very much in the Armenian humanitarian issue, at least the government is, in order to um, uh, solidify their geopolitical position in this region. They see Armenians as allies. If we are making this rhetoric, we are going to be your allies, and then you won't turn to Russia, you'll turn to us. Right. And uh, did uh, do you, in, when you were uh, carrying out this research, research, did you see an evolution in liberal policy uh, also when they, when they assumed power back again in 1906? Uh, I, you did mention the, them sending the warship in 1909, but it had a very, it seemed to be a very standoffish policy. Well, you know what's interesting is um, one of the reasons I started writing about um, the end of the war, 1919 and the war crimes tribunals, is what you do see is you do see a concerted effort on the part of the British to prosecute the Ottoman Empire for war crimes. Now, that did not happen with Abdul Hamid. That did not happen earlier. The idea that the first war crimes tribunals are held after World War One at the Put at the input, at the at the pressing of the British, they they do this. I think is really notable, and I do think that comes out of a Victorian liberal sensibility. Um, uh, Admiral Calthorpe, who's the guy who's in charge of these investigations, um, uh, he seems a very earnest man in his um, uh, in his his pursuit of of justice. He actually goes out and starts. Um, uh, finding people who were accused of massacres and locking them up himself with his assistants. So I think we do have to see um, this liberal sensibility moving from one of humanitarian um, uh, and geopolitical um, maneuverings to one in which I think the liberals, the British government, does see a role that they that this needs to be prosecuted. So I do think there's an evolution. It is a failure ultimately in 1919. But the idea that that uh, a foreign power would try another a sovereign state for crimes committed against its own people is a brand new idea. And I do think it comes out of this liberal sensibility as it's evolving in the late 19th and early 20th century. We can't give the British too much credit for, you know, doing the right thing, but we can say that this is this is an unprecedented moment, and it, and I think we can connect the dots back to the Gladstonian liberalism, um, and this this these war crimes trials, I think, are evidence that this this thinking does evolve and does at least attempt to create some structures that um, eventually will become the basis of our international law, crimes against humanity statutes. And of course, uh, you know there was a uh, quite a bit of political uh, shakeups from 1906 until the the end of the war. And uh, you mentioned Admiral Calthorpe, which I think uh, kind of segues into the next question I want to ask you. So, when in reading your book, we come across uh, some of the most prominent political and social luminaries of the age before the outbreak of World War One who came out in support of the Armenians, and 
was this a homogenous group or did the views between politicians and say social workers vary and if so to what degree and uh, even if we were to take the example of Admiral Calthorpe, could we look uh, into, let's say, some someone's education or uh, their social background and extrapolate certain conclusions um, uh, to the degree that it is possible? That's a good question. I mean, um, if you think about those who were sort of on the Armenian side, it was definitely a liberal, and here I mean liberal party, capital L, liberal party platform, and that really is influenced by Gladstone. Um, as I say in the book, I mean, on Gladstone, his final entry in his diary when he dies, uh, right before he dies, the last thing he writes, he makes a list of things that he wants to, he's worried about and that he thinks should be taken care of. And the Armenians are on that list. I mean, he's thinking about the Armenian question a couple of days before he dies. His very last public speech is on the Armenian question. And I think we can't, um, we can't overlook the importance of that kind of leadership for the Liberal Party. Now, the Liberal Party dies in the 1920s. Lloyd George, in my view, was the last Liberal Prime Minister um, and the actual last successful one in, in, with the, who, who, who really embodies this sort of sensibility. Um, but, but I think we can see it very much as connected to a particular kind of Liberal politics. That said, um, you get the church involved. Um, the biggest supporters of the Assyrians um, was the was the Archbishop, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So you see a church constituency, and he's raising money for the Assyrians and and the Armenians and his missions. So I do think you can see religious constituencies, political constituencies, and finally the secular humanitarian constituency. That one is um, probably more divided in terms of its politics. Um, they're not all liberals, certainly, but they do come from a Victorian sensibility that believes the British Empire has an obligation to create um, uh, an aid what we would call foreign aid uh, for people like like the Armenians and the Assyrians and the Greeks who are suffering um, in the in World War One. So I think it's a range of constituencies. They do have different motivations. Their politics are often distinctively liberal, but not not always. Not always. I uh, I think Nasibian's point, which is a really good one, when she says, you know, the reason this dies in the 1920s, why there's so little information uh, about the Armenians after the 20s, is this group of liberals. Really has finally, they are extinguished, they're gone. So um, I think there are other reasons as well because of the war crimes trials failure. I think there's a whole bunch of different things that the, the problems in India through the British Empire. But I do think there's an, there is a trajectory where there's an argument to be made that this is an issue that is very much tied to one party that then can get become broader if you think about um, humanitarian and religious activism at the same time. Right, and um, can we... Uh, perhaps say that the the reaction or the response of the the British public and also the British government could at times also be selective. Uh, I remember uh, reading David Rodano in highlighting uh, the great powers' concern for the Christians, but he also would uh, I think make the argument saying that they were not so concerned about, for example, Muslim suffering in in other instances, yes. and uh, if you can elaborate on why that may have been so, though, uh, be yeah, this great. is a story that I don't think is really very well known. But so, why the Armenians is what you're asking? Why would they care about this small group in um, in eastern Anatolia? What was it? What was it about this group? Well, 
it, it, it goes back to religion. Um, what Gladstone argued is that the Armenians, as Orthodox Christians, had a connection with um, Anglican Protestantism, <laughs> that they were, in fact, brethren that the what they admi- what he admired about the orthodox christian is there was no heresy in the in that <laughs> they were orthodox and so he also saw these um ethnographic connections and one of the things i do in smyrna's ashes is to show how the british very much create this ethnographic map of the middle east which connects middle eastern or what what then was known as near eastern peoples with a european lineage and so gladstone really sees the armenians as kin and that's a straight, it's a hard thing for us to imagine, but a lot of it has to do with religion. A lot of it has to do with how he sees orthodox beliefs. And a lot of it has to do with this new ethnographic mapping that's happening in the late 19th century around Caucasia, the Caucasus Mountains, and how much he sees um, these connections with the Armenians. So he sees religion as important. Um, I think there is a religion reason that Muslims do not get included in this circle of of humanitarian um, uh, 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 sympathy um, during this time. A lot of that has to do with religion, but it also um, is about this kind of connection that some of it manufactured and some of it, um, I think, what Gladstone sees as sort of authentic, um, really making um, making these, making it, making giving Britons a reason to care about this small group of people. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, is something that I find most fascinating when reading this book and just seeing uh, how much, you know, uh, all these familiar names like Gladstone, yeah. like Churchill, to be making references, not even in, in public, but even in, as you mentioned, uh, even in their uh, private letters and diaries. And uh, it just goes to show that um, when we're studying this period, uh, we probably can look beyond just uh, Europe, you know, Europe as a continent and even look at uh, the Ottoman Empire and see that this was actually a world where everybody was uh, was uh, looking very attentively and uh, studying what was happening uh, beyond their own borders. And so uh, when the war broke out, of course, uh, Great Britain was engaged on a number of fronts uh, and on the Western Front, it had its um, largest military uh, uh, forces and concentrated and uh, in 1915 or uh, toward the end of uh, at least at the end of 1914 we see that they try to uh, open up a new front in uh, the Middle East and that includes their uh, campaigns in uh, Mesopotamia of course in Gallipoli and so they really are unable uh, to extend any aid to the Armenians once the genocide begins in uh, insofar as them being able to do so with uh, the military uh, uh, wherewithal. But once the, the war comes to an end in the end of 1918, they occupy Constantinople and also several parts of Anatolia and the Caucasus. And of course, after the war, many Armenians uh, blamed the Allies, and that includes Britain and France, for failing to live up to their commitments to the Armenians. And I was hoping we could break this down um, because, you know, it's good to move beyond these facile 
explanations. And what precisely did the Allies promise to the Armenians during the war, and what ultimately transpired during the post-war period, uh, ending with the Treaty of Lausanne, which was signed by uh, Great Britain, France, uh, and Mustafa Kemal's uh, 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 representatives, uh, and uh, who represented the new Turkey that was uh, forming at this time? That is a great and complicated question. One of the things I, um, I think, I mean, I think the Armenian genocide is so crucial to understanding the war, but also in the period that we call the post-war. So when we talk about the Treaty of Sèvres and we talk about Luzon, um, we have to understand it, I think, as part of a larger, a longer story of the war. Now, the war ends in Western Europe in 1918, but it doesn't end for everybody else until 1923. There's a failed peace treaty. The armistice in 1918 does not stop the fighting. We get the Greco-Turkish War. We get um, allied fighting in Eastern Anatolia. Some people call it the hush-hush armies, right, because no one knows this is happening. So war is really going on, not just because they can't get the treaty right, but because they're actually fighting one another and it hasn't been settled. And so one of the things I find so fascinating and I think is so important about the Armenian Genocide is the settlement of the Armenian question as it becomes known is embedded in all of these other um, uh, wartime agendas. And the Armenians certainly get caught in the middle, but I think their situation is crucial to determining the final peace. And I think if we put the Armenian story at the center of this period, we really get a really interesting story of the end of the war. Because one of the thing reasons the Allies used to say, why is this war being fought? And the British do this more almost as much as the Americans say we are going we are fighting this war to liberate small nationalities now who do they mean they say that small nationalities they mean the Assyrians they mean the Armenians uh, they are the Belgians of course the Belgians yeah well it's, but you know it's interesting because the Belgians are the, the beginning of this right and we don't mm-hmm. think about the Armenians as part of that group of the Belgian atrocities sort of things right, like right. the reason for the Eastern Front's interest in the Eastern Front, the justification, if we've got Belgium in the West, we've got Armenia in the East. And I think putting the Armenian story at the center of this really helps us understand, first, the failure. So the short answer to your question is yes, everything promised did not materialize. Uh, the Treaty of, of Severs, we'll never know what that would have been like. We would, wouldn't, I mean, that account, I mean, the idea of a, um Armenian state, that idea comes out in this period. The, the Americans never take that. Um, the, uh, the, we, the the Russian Civil War is also important in this moment, right? Why Armenia as an independent nation only lasts um, as long as it does. Right. So I guess when we're talking about broken promises, we also have to talk about a war that is ongoing. It isn't just that Armenia got shafted in the settlement. It's that the settlement <laughs> hinged on the um, negotiating of these... Of these um, forces and factors in a world where uh, this war seemed like it might never end. And Luzon was a disaster of a treaty, not just for um, uh, minorities, as I argue in the book, but in, in more geopolitical terms, I believe, particularly for the refugee crisis that happens later. And then my next my next project is really about what happens to survivors that are forced out of the Ottoman Empire, out, out, out of what will be Turkey, into the former lands of the Ottoman Empire, not to Europe, not to the America, but south. What happens to that group that is caught in this netherworld between war and peace, um, and why it matters so much that the, these, these, these series of failures, failed promises, but also 
the failure for the West to actually enact uh, um, its own agenda on the East um, uh, has on communities in the region, but also kind of the future for instability. So it's a big question. So I think if we move out of the out of asking that question, which is one that I'm so familiar with, like, did it fail for Armenians? Yes, it failed for Armenians, but to understand the failure of Armenians, for Armenians, is to understand a larger story of failure for the region and for Western diplomacy and geopolitics. Yeah, and uh, we, we touched upon uh, why were uh, Europeans, you know, fighting this war uh, across the continent, and, you know, of course, governments had to as the the short war illusion evaporated, uh, this was a question which uh, the uh, belligerent powers had to ultimately uh, try to address. And so we see with the example of Belgium, uh, there being great play of the atrocities that the Germans uh, allegedly or uh, in fact in, uh, did commit. And uh, did uh, was a similar propaganda campaign mounted in uh, the, in Great Britain, and um, I'm not. And in the course of your research, did you see any responses? Did uh, were people writing, for example, letters uh, to newspapers, voicing their opinions on what the uh, what the government should do, or even uh, did British soldiers or ANZAC soldiers uh, ever voice any particular opinions on the massacres and? Uh, or even witnessed them once they finally made some headway in 1918 and during their campaigns in, in Palestine and uh, Mesopotamia. Well, here's where I think it gets really interesting and the imperial story matters because we often don't think about the Armenian genocide as tied up in this war of empires in the same kind of way. We think of it as a national story. We often think of it as a as a, a Turkey versus uh, Armenian story. But if we broaden our scope and think of it as an imperial story, we really kind of understand um, why, uh, why Armenia suddenly seems abandoned, right? Um, yes, there's tons of rhetoric. I mean, uh, Lord, uh, James Bryce's blue book on the atrocities, I mean, it's like 700 pages of atrocity after atrocity after atrocity, and he publishes it um, in October because he, that's when he believes it's going to have the biggest effect. I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is meant to have an impact. Uh, if I, if I may interrupt you, you said that if it was published in October, it would have the greatest effect. Was there something There's particular about that month? The idea was that people would pay attention because they were done with summer. The idea that if it hit in July, everyone would be on vacation and no one would know, right? So wow. he compiles all this stuff and he wants to go to press in the fall because he believes that it's going to have the biggest impact on his American and British audiences, which is what he wants to do and they present it in this big ceremony and he says this is my evidence and he's the same guy who does the uh, uh, Belgian atrocities blue book as well so he's the same guy so yes I think it is an exact analogy I mean it's not even analogous it's a parallel yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really do see what happens with the Belgian case is really happening with the Armenian case and James Bryce because he's the guy who does it and it has the similar effect of mobilizing public sentiment um, towards the East. Now, Gallipoli happens now, Churchill's opinions matter here, the War Departments, the navies uh, certainly, but when Gallipoli, Gallipoli happens in 1915, on the eve of the Armenian Genocide, you really already have this, um, you, you, you have the whisperings of a campaign that eventually will be, by that next fall, become in full swing. The British are committed after Gallipoli. And 
and the Armenians give them a very good reason <laughs> to be committed. Yeah. So, so yes, I think the Armenians are really at the core of this, and there's tons of propaganda. But the imperial story is interesting because at the, at the end of this period, right, about 1919, right when these war crime trials are happening, that same spring, the spring where trials are supposed to be taking place. When Calthorpe is collecting all of the Turkish war criminals, they put them in jails in Malta, they're getting ready to try them. Um, a Mritsar happens in India. Right, And right. The, the massacre of unarmed civilians in India by um, General Dyer becomes uh, a real problem for the British Empire because they're worried now about... Um, it, what they, what, how they put it, inflaming Muslim sentiment, that's how they put it, um, in a crucial hour. So the idea here is if you side with the Armenians in 1919, it might be a good thing to do in 1915, but if you start pushing the Ottoman Empire to try war criminals in 1919, you are going to create a rebellion in India. And if we know anything about Churchill, it's, the, it's, it's this. The number one thing he had on his mind in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was the preservation of the British Empire. And for him, India was at the center. So even though Churchill at this time is not really the decision maker, it's Lloyd George, who's the prime minister, it is these factors swirling around the empire that I think are crucial in understanding um, both the embrace of the Armenians in 1915 and their eventual abandonment in 1919. I mean, that the timing is just too, um, it, it corresponds too, too neatly for us not to have that explanation. Yeah, and I think this uh, imperial context that you uh, situate so well in uh, the, your book is uh, very important because oftentimes we may be constrained to think that, you know, this is just uh, the great powers using the Armenians for their own purposes and, you know, abandoning them at the drop of a hat. But, uh, the example of Armitsar uh, is just uh, one which is almost never mentioned uh, in, the, in these discussions, and I think it's very important. So there was this discourse that was created during the uh, period, during the war, and uh, apparently it did have a resonating effect among the British public uh, for, you know, whatever the purposes of the British government uh, may have been, they, uh, the facts and the stories uh, must have appealed to them uh, uh, to a considerable degree. And so finally, now that we get to the end of the war, uh, how do we assess the British humanitarian effort for the Armenians? Was this a failure because in the end it did not match the soaring rhetoric of its most vocal proponents or um, of the Armenians' most vocal proponents, or can success be looked at differently and by other measures? And you know, um, mm -hmm. That is such a great question. So the short answer is yes, it was a failure. It was a terrible failure in terms of prosecuting the genocide and making sure that, 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 that this, that crimes against humanity and prosecuting who was responsible for the Armenian genocide, that did not happen. So that's that is just, you know, that is, I think that's indisputable. But what we do have to think about, and I think this is where my next project is going, is what, what are the sort of after effects of this kind of um, advocacy work on the geopolitical and the humanitarian level? So we can take the geopolitical first. Well, the first is the rise of international institutions that now are responsible for seeing these kinds of prosecutions through. Remember, the Ottoman ultimately the Ottoman government is given charge of prosecuting its own war criminals and, and the Sultan himself says 
I will not diminish the guilt of those who were responsible for the massacres. He says that in 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 documents that are you know uh, verified. But what happens is he can't do it because Mustafa Kemal's power is rising, the Turkish nationalists are rising in the south, um, and so those geopolitical forces prevent any sort of um, the ability to try your own war criminals, if you will, that we're going to make this an internal matter. So the international institutions is the first thing that comes out of this. Now, they have a mixed record, certainly, but we do get Nuremberg out of it, right, out of the right. pressure of the American government, right? So eventually we do get um, a reckoning of this um, of this issue of what what can what can a government do to its own peoples and people resoundingly by the 40s they there there is an answer um, it might not um, it might have been too little too late um, but I do think there's precedent and I think in the geopolitical level that's important now on the humanitarian level um, what's really interesting is this attempt to create um, regimes of, of resettlement for uh, refugees those are also largely a failure, but they do fulfill a function that um, was very powerful, a powerful guiding force in the 20s and 30s, that, that, that people deserve, um, deserve to be treated in a way that um, ensures their humanity can be maintained and kept intact. So all of these orphanages, these refugee camps that get set up, these resettlement campaigns, they're done with the intent of, of, of recreating the world that the war destroyed. Now, yes, a good utopian or a Victorian idea, absolutely. But the question isn't, for me, isn't, did they fail so we should just never, we should throw it out? That's not my question. My question is, what do we learn from the failure of this particular, of the, this particular set of circumstances? And what, what actually came out of it that's worth salvaging? versus saying that there was some sort of, there was a raw deal served to the Armenians or there was a raw deal served to people who, who sided with the British Empire. You can talk about this with the Arab Revolt in 1917, right? The Balfour Declaration with with uh, with um, Palestinians. You know, you can say that it, these things were, were problematic and they were from the beginning, but if we do that, then we lose the chance to say, what was it about humanitarianism and this geopolitical moment that said, we must act internationally against these crimes, is we're salvaging. And I think that's the moment we're kind of at. And if we don't do that, then all of this was for nothing, honestly. All the suffering, all of the um, all of the back and forth, all the money spent was for nothing. But if we can't take anything from it, then um, I, 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 that's what, that's what kind of bothers me the most, I think, that these projects become one that say, it didn't work then, it'll never work, don't trust anybody. Internationalism is a failure, and and it can't work. So, so that's I guess why I'm working on refugees. <laughs> I'd, like to see, I'd like to understand uh, what the longer story of this genocide was, and I do think the genocide should be seen as having a huge effect, not just from 1915 to 1919, but all the way through the 1920s. And I think that's that's the next kind of frontier of genocide studies. I think. Yeah, and I, I think it's very heartening to see that progression and, uh, you know, perhaps you can look at what was happening 150 years ago and so far as, you know, this incipient humanitarianism movement uh, uh, was emerging in, uh, in, in Europe in the 19th century and uh, then you can compare and see how much, uh, I suppose, people learned from... Uh, 
learned lessons from the past and were able to uh, build upon them in order to uh, in order to bring some measure of justice and uh, uh, comfort to the victims of uh, genocide and other forms of mass mass violence. Uh, so we, uh, Professor Tucson, we ran the gauntlet on a number of topics and uh, was there anything particular that uh, you might would have liked to have touched upon or did I uh, by any chance miss anything? Um, these were most excellent questions. Thank you for reading my book so carefully and <laughs> asking me such thoughtful questions. Um, the only thing I'd like to say is that um, I, I think writing about a topic like this, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of scholarship uh, because I was close to it. My grandmother survived the genocide. And I, I'm grateful that it has an audience that it's something that can engage with issues that move beyond the Armenian story and into some of these other arenas because um, I do think that today we need the story of the Armenian genocide, not just for Armenians, not just for the people caught up in the wake of the Armenian genocide, the Assyrians and the Greek communities too, but I, I do think we need it as a human story and I think we need to understand what the costs of, of ignoring these stories and denying these histories and um, because they make us uncomfortable uh, not talking about them, what those costs are. And I think they're very real human costs. And um, so uh, thank you for letting me talk about it. Well, and again, thank you for um, uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to, to talk to uh, talk to me and do this podcast. And again, this is a work that's uh, built on this prodigious uh, level of research, and I think it would be is uh, very uh, fascinating for uh, scholars who are working on this burgeoning field. And again, thank you very much, Professor. You are very welcome. Thank you, Armin. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for uh, listening to the Society for Armenian Studies podcast.